Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. We're continuing our series, Rediscovered Church, guided by the book of the same title by Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman. And we're studying through each chapter of the book in our three-part topical sermon series to consider what and who the Bible says the church is. Last Sunday, we started part two of our series discussing chapter four, and we asked the question, why are teaching and preaching central to the local church? And today, we want to discuss the question, is joining a local church necessary? And in order to answer this question, I really have just one main aim, to show you what the Bible says about church membership, Uh, because that and that only is what necessitates anything we do as Christians and as a Christian church. After all, church membership is not an exclusively NCBC thing, nor a Reformed thing, nor a Baptist thing. It is a biblical thing. Now, last Sunday, I went a bit above and beyond to emphasize that the normal means of preaching here at New Covenant Baptist Church should be and will be expository preaching. Expository preaching, which can be defined preaching in which the main point of the passage becomes the main point of the sermon being preached. And this is because we believe preachers of God's word are mail carriers, as I shared last week. The purpose of the preacher is to clearly and faithfully deliver God's word. The pulpit is simply not a place where the preacher of God's word shares his own thoughts and his own ideas and funny stories and experiences and uses Bible verses to support his claim. The main task of the preacher is to exposit God's word. But again, for this series, I will be preaching topically because the elders have prayerfully decided for a young church like ours, it would be important and helpful for us to devote these series of messages to teach on the significance of what and who the Bible says a church is. So we pray these messages will be edifying and challenging to you as you consider what a gift of grace it is in belonging to a local church, ultimately as part of God's larger universal church that it will grow you in your love and appreciation for this local church, the brothers and sisters whom the Lord has called and placed you to covenant together with to pray and serve and disciple one another towards love and good deeds for God's glory and for the advancement of his gospel. If you are here and you're not a Christian, welcome. We're so glad that you are here. We've been praying for you. We pray that what you see and hear and experience this afternoon through our worship gathering will warm you and draw you to the one in whom we love and trust and hope in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our gracious King, Lord, and Savior. So without further ado, let's consider how the scriptures present this biblical idea of church membership. And in order to answer whether joining the local church is actually necessary, here's the outline so you know what's ahead. Point number one, what does the Old Testament say? What does the Old Testament say? Point number two, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? Point number three, what does the apostles say? Point number three, what does the apostles say? And point number four, what does our membership say? What does our membership say? Old Testament, Jesus, apostles, and our membership. So point number one, what does the Old Testament say? Before we dive in, I just want to make a note that much of what I will share today is derived from the book, Rediscovered Church, 
specifically chapter 5 today. In particular, chapter 5 is so helpful and thorough. I pray that you would pick up a copy and read the book, Rediscovered Church. And much of what I will share today will be directly from uh, that chapter, as well as Jonathan Lehman's other books, Church Membership, Don't Fire Your Church Members, and Understanding Congregational Authority. Again, if you do not have a copy of this book, I encourage you to pick it up. I think it's available on our bookstall or online bookstore. Uh, Please pick up a copy, and I know that it will edify you, encourage you, and challenge you. Well, first, in examining what the Scripture says about church membership, we should define what church membership is. And Jonathan Lehman, who is a friend of our congregation and someone who is known as one of the leading voices on ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church today, defines it this way. Church membership is a church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's profession of faith and discipleship combined with the Christian's submission to the church and its oversight. So one more time. A church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's profession of faith and discipleship combined with the Christian's submission to the church and its oversight. Now in the 21st century, the words oversight and submission may sound a bit offensive, maybe even a little backward, But what I mean by submitting to a church doesn't mean you are submitting to the leaders or an institution in some vague bureaucratic sense, begrudgingly or mechanically. Rather, you are submitting to a family and all its members joyfully and wholeheartedly. It's a loving and willing submission. It's your way of saying, this is the particular group of Christians I'm inviting into my life and asking to keep me accountable for following Jesus. You're asking them to take responsibility of your Christian walk. You're acknowledging you can't live the Christian life on your own, and you're admitting your dependence on them. If you're discouraged, it's now their responsibility to encourage you. If you stray from the right path, it's their responsibility to correct you. If you're in dire financial trouble, it's their responsibility to look after you and care for you. Yet you need to understand this commitment goes both ways. In asking other members of the church to look out after you, you are also promising to look out after them. You are now part of the church. You, plural, collectively, corporately, are the church. Remember, the church is not a building or a place. It's a people. Now, some of you are wondering, where do you see church membership in the Old Testament? Now, if you want to learn more about where to see and understand the church as we understand it in the New Testament sense, as God's idea starting from the Old Testament, you can reference part one of this sermon series preached earlier this year in January and February, found on our church website, Apple Podcast, and Spotify. But let me simply summarize that from the beginning, God has set apart a people for himself. For example, in the Old Testament, through the nation of Israel. And in the New Testament, Jews and Gentiles who came to know salvation through Christ Jesus. And we see all throughout the Bible, God has always drawn a clear line around his people. The Garden of Eden had an inside and an outside. The Noah's Ark had an inside and an outside. The people of Israel and Egypt quarantined off in Goshen had an inside and an outside. So turn with me quickly to Exodus chapter 8, found on page 50 of your pew Bibles, the blue Bibles around you to see an example of how. Exodus chapter 8, 
verse 22 through 23, and we're going to be flipping through various passages today. So get your Bibles ready to follow along. So Exodus chapter 8, verses 22 through 23 says this, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Notice how God used flies to draw the line between his people and those who are not his people. Furthermore, as Israel traveled into the wilderness, God gave them the cleanliness laws in order to draw a line between the inside of the camp and outside of the camp. And in the promised land, God also designated an inside and an outside. The point is, God has always marked off his people so that he might put them on display for his own glory. God always wanted his people to be a set-apart people. So write these verses down because I'm not sure if you can follow along quickly. But Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Exodus 19, 5 through 6 says this. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Leviticus 20, 26 says this. You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Deuteronomy 14.2 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And Joshua 7.13, Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourself for tomorrow, For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Now in this sense, if God has chosen his people, and through his salvation we already belong to the universal church, some may ask, do I really need to join a local church? Don't I already belong to Christ's universal church upon salvation, upon conversion? The universal church, of course, is what theologians call the entire body of believers of Christ throughout the world and throughout all history, visible and invisible, Christians of all time, everywhere. Well, it's true. You don't need to join a local church to be saved. Our membership in the universal church is a gift, just as righteousness in Christ is a gift and just as faith is a gift. Yet Jonathan Lehman argues, and he is right, You do need to join a local church in order to be obedient to Scripture, in order to be obedient to Scripture. Simply, our membership in the universal church cannot remain an abstract idea out there. If one's faith is real, as you claim to be, I am a Christian, I am saved, I know Christ is my own, it ought to show up on earth in real time and space with real people, with those who know you and can vouch for your profession of faith, with those whom you can carry out the one another commands of Scripture, such as love one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another above yourselves, live in harmony with one another, build up one another, pray for one another, forgive one another, singing with one another, instruct one another. You see how obvious it is? Without belonging to a local church, who are the one another you are supposed to obey these commands with? 
It's impossible. Anyone can say they are a Christian. Anyone can say they believe in God. But if no one can vouch for you, if there is no local body of believers who can confidently affirm your faith, in whom you can keep your faith accountable, oh yeah, Jeremy and Jacob and Faith and Emily and Josh, they are genuine born-again Christians. As authors of Rediscovered Church says, a Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. A Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. So in bringing all of that together, Lehman explains genuine membership in the universal church creates the local church membership, which in turn demonstrates or proves one's universal church membership. Let me say that again. Genuine membership in the universal church creates local church membership, which in turn demonstrates or proves one's universal church membership. In other words, to belong to the universal church, the body of God's people, is through your local church membership where your faith is affirmed, whether genuine or false. In the chapter, Lehman gives a really, really helpful example which happens all so often to so many so-called Christians we know. He shares, I had a friend whom I encouraged to join my church after he had been attending for several months. He declined because he didn't want the accountability. Meanwhile, he was dabbling in significant sin. Not surprisingly, his attendance grew more and more sporadic until he stopped attending altogether. A few months later, lo and behold, he confesses he no longer is a Christian, or at least that kind or your kind of Christian. In summary, Lehman explains, and I quote, church membership offers the safety of the sheep pen where Christ is shepherd. It offers the nourishment of being attached to a body like an arm to a torso where Christ is the head. It offers the love of a family where Christ is the firstborn of many heirs. It offers the obligation and duties of citizenship in a holy nation where Christ is the king. Close quote. Perhaps you know of someone who tried to live out their Christian faith apart from a church. Little by little, their faith withered. Sometimes, might I even say, most likely their faith disappeared altogether entirely. So I hope you see that it has always been part of God's plan from the Old Testament to set apart a people for himself who would be saved by grace through faith in Christ the Messiah. And they were always distinguished from the world, those who are in, those who are out, those who are under God's covenant, those who are not, those who are part of God's universal church, God's people, assembly and congregation, those who are not, a clear division, separation and distinction. Now then, let's move to our next point in answering, is joining the local church actually, really, biblically necessary? Point number two, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? In this point, we're going to look mainly at three passages of Scripture. So start turning your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. All three passages will come from the Gospel of Matthew. Many of you are familiar with Peter's famous confession in Matthew 16. Turn your Bibles with me. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19, page 821 in the blue Bibles around you. And in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19, it says this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I want to draw your attention to these following verses, verses 19 and on. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, what does Jesus exactly mean here when he refers to the keys of the kingdom of heaven? And what does Jesus mean in the issue of binding and loosing? And more importantly, how does it relate to Jesus building his church in which the gates of hell shall not prevail against? Well, the keys of the kingdom most certainly is based on the identical metaphor found in Isaiah 22, 22. You can just write that verse down. Isaiah 22, 22. Reference it later. It's the verse where prophet Isaiah rebukes an unworthy steward of God's household and says that authority will be transferred to Eliakim, who will, as a result, possess the key of David with which he will open and shut. And what we see is that contextually, according to the context, and culturally, a key always denotes the power to make and enforce binding decisions. You'll also see the keys referenced in various verses in the book of Revelation, Revelation 1.18, Revelation 3.7 among uh, the few, which also is used to represent authority, authority. So in connecting Matthew 16.19, to Isaiah 22, 22, taking into account the parallel understanding of the keys in Scripture, what Jesus is doing is extending his authority to Peter in particular and later on to the whole church in Matthew 18, 18. We're going to get to that verse in just a second. So initially, Peter and the other apostles are to carry out the foundational ecclesiastical roles through the handling of the keys or exercising kingdom authority as they plant the first churches in the book of Acts And as the local churches are established, Jesus' authority is to be exercised by the local churches as agents of God's kingdom through binding and loosing. Follow along with me. So in Matthew 16, Jesus teaches that the keys are used to affirm right confessions of the gospel. Now let's take a look at Matthew 18 to help clarify what that means, where Jesus teaches that the keys are used to affirm true confessors of the gospel. Jesus is teaching his disciples how they ought to resolve unrepentant sin amongst each other. And these verses have become the proof text of what we know as church discipline or excommunication for New Testament churches, which we'll learn about in two Sundays from now. So Matthew 18, flip two chapters forward. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17 says this. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." And again, these next verses are the ones I want to draw your attention to. So verse 18 and on says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, 
It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So you see in these verses how the keys of the kingdom, the authority of Jesus from Matthew 16, first given to Peter and to the apostles, is exercised by the local church. There is a definite group of believers who come around an unrepentant member patiently, persistently urging repentance. And the final act involves telling it to the church, taking that unrepentant member's sin to the church. And if necessary, the church is to remove their affirmation of the unrepentant member and treating them as a Gentile or a tax collector, in this context, synonymous to an unbeliever. Again, verse 18 follows those verses and says, whatever you, plural, corporately, as a local church, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You see, contrary to popular and common teaching in some of our churches today, this binding and loosing is not some spiritual power that a pastor or anyone in the local congregation imparts to someone else as if they could bring down some heavenly power, right? Context is key. The authority or the keys that Jesus gives to the church is to affirm or deny a fellow believer's profession of faith. It's so very crucial to understand this kind of authority does not belong to an individual. A person can't say, who are you to tell me if I'm a Christian or not? Because Jesus does. And that authority is to affirm or deny, bind and loose That authority, the keys, are given to the members of a local church, not to a pope, not to a pastor, not to a board of elders or trustees. Scripture says, tell it to the church. Of course, the exercise of that authority on this side of the earth will never be perfect or flawless, just as churches make wrong judgments all the time, just as ambassadors and embassies or judges or courts will at times make wrong judgments. Still, That authority, the keys, is given by Christ to the churches nevertheless. This is why it's so important to understand, as Lehman says, churches don't make Christians. Churches don't make Christians. We become Christians by the new birth. But churches are embassies of heaven, bought by the blood of Christ, which Christ has tasked with affirming our heavenly citizenship. So Baptists, Presbyterians, Anglicans might disagree on who exactly makes that pronouncement, whether it's the whole congregation or the elders or the bishops acting on behalf of the congregation. But all agree, this is like, you can't debate this, that Jesus has given this authority to the local churches. Instead of handing out passports, however, local churches don't hand out passports like embassies, churches hand out baptism and share the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk more about that soon. Uh, This then leads to our third passage. Flip to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20 on page 835 of the Blue Bibles. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. It's a famous uh, passage that we all know pretty well. It says this, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We know this famous passage as the Great Commission. 
Jesus having been resurrected and right before he ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of God as the sovereign king, his final instruction on earth to his disciples is authorizing the local church to go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all, all that he has commanded. Remember we said earlier, you need the local church to obey Christ's command. How are we to make disciples? How are we to baptize How are we to uh, teach them to obey? We do it through the authority given to the local church with what Christ has ordained for the church. It is impossible, brothers and sisters, I don't know if you ever tried, to fulfill the Great Commission individually on your own, apart from the local church, without belonging to a local church. How do you do it? Uh, How do you go and make disciples and baptize and, and teach them to observe all that they have commanded on your own? It's not granted to individual Christians. It's given to the local church. So bringing all those three passages together, we see Jesus has authorized the local church to stand in front of the confessor, to consider the confessor's confession, to consider his or her life, and to announce an official judgment on heaven's behalf. So the church is asking as a new member uh, considers to join the church, is that a right confession? Is this a true confessor? And the local church discerns, again, the what and the who of the gospel, just like Jesus did with Peter in Matthew 16. And it will do these things with the ordinances that are established in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, when Jesus institutes the New Testament baptism. So this is why earlier in this series, we defined the local church, definition of the local church right here again. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather, regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Christ Jesus and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper. Let me say that again. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Remember I said last Sunday, two marks of a true church. In other words, for a church to be a truly biblical church, not just a group of Christians gathering together, truly Jesus' church is to obey what he, Christ himself, authorized. The right preaching of God's word, and the right administration of the ordinances. That's what makes a church. Right preaching, right ordinances, baptism, and Lord's Supper. And this is important because the way in which a local church binds and looses is first through preaching. When a preacher preaches, he binds or looses the consciences of the congregation to his understanding of God's Word. Second, the church binds or looses through the ordinances. So again, in order to clarify and cement even more Let's see how the apostles carried out and established the right preaching and the right administration and baptism and Lord's Supper in the New Testament church through church membership, which moves us to our third point. Are you guys with me? What does the apostles say? Point number three. In Acts 2, turn with me to Acts 2, page 909 in your blue Bibles. 909. Acts chapter 2. The once fearful disciples gathered 
and restored by the risen Christ, is empowered by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Peter stands before the crowd of people and preaches a powerful sermon explaining how the scriptures pointed to Christ and how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's prophecies and promises and that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 36 and on, he says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And it says, when they heard, they were cut to the heart and believed. And they asked the apostles, brothers, what shall we do then? And Peter says to them in verse 38, I love it, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls. And it says in verse 41, so those who received his word, in other words, those who believed in the word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Man, there's a lot I can say there, but I must say because it is so clear, those who received the word were baptized. Not babies, but I digress. Pedro knows what I'm talking about. Those who received the word were baptized. And not only were they baptized, they were added. Added to what? Added to the church. Counted among the body of believers who trusted in Christ's substitute life and substitute death and in his resurrection. Amen? In Acts 6, flip to Acts 6. Just a few pages after, page 914, verse 2, Acts 6, verse 2 says this. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. The twelve apostles called together all the believers. They called the church together for a members meeting. It was an invitation not for everyone who are interested in tuning in, you see. It was for believers. It was for members. And of course, the term church membership isn't used in the Bible as we use it today, but it was undoubtedly understood who was and who was not part of the church. Let me give you one more verse, two more verses. Acts 12.5. It says, Acts 12.5, when Peter was kept in prison, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Again, one more. Later in 1 Corinthians 5.2, you don't have to turn there, just listen. 1 Corinthians 5.2, the Apostle Paul talks about removing someone from church's membership. And 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, Paul talks about not judging outsiders, but rather those who are inside the church whom we are to judge. So 1 Corinthians 5.12 and 13 says this, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those who inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those who are outside, but we are to purge the evil person, the unrepentant person from among you. So think of it this way. The gospel preached and proclaimed is the invitation for all, for sinners and also believers to humble themselves before a holy God and to repent and believe and trust in his salvation through Christ. Amen? Then baptism, which is the public profession of faith for those who believe in the Word of God, it's the front door or entrance into membership into a church. 
then Lord's Supper, however regular, weekly or monthly, depending on what church you go to, is the family meal. It's like family dinner time or the ongoing affirmation and check whether a believer is indeed fulfilling the one another commands of Scripture by way of reminder of Jesus' sacrifice, His broken body and His spilt blood, and the hope of the new and greater fine wine we will have with Jesus on the day of His return and the forthcoming marriage supper of the Lamb as according to Revelation 19, 7 through 10. Brothers and sisters, church membership, a body of redeemed, forgiven saints of Jesus united together by the blood of Christ, which torn down the dividing wall between sinful man and a holy God, and between the Jews and the Gentiles, covenanted together by the promise of God, by the profession we make through baptism and through Lord's Supper, is the display of the gospel at work. It is the testimony that Jesus is alive and well, that His church is being built up, and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that His kingdom will have no end. Amen? The church is the gospel made visible, the gospel which is the good news of Jesus Christ, the best news you will ever hear. That a holy God created all things, the heavens and the earth and everything in between. That he created man to show us his measureless and matchless glory and love. But man, having been tempted by Satan, chose to distrust and disobey God's word, choosing to be our own gods, rebelling against God. And so man was separated from God, set on a path to consequential and eventual death, incapable, impossible to save ourselves from the power and curse of sin. Scripture says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There was no way for us to save ourselves but God. But God, the most glorious words of Scripture, but God had a plan from before the foundation of the world to set apart a people for himself who would know his redeeming, forgiving, merciful, always and everlasting steadfast love for us to know the oneness of the Father, Son, and Spirit. His plan was to send his Son, the Word of God, made flesh, truly God and truly man, for him to live the life that we could not live, for him to die the death that we should have died by his sinless life and by his substitute death. He took upon himself our just punishment of God, suffering the wrath of God that we would have suffered in eternal hell. By his death on the cross, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ loved the church. Christ loved his people and gave himself up for her. And he declared, it is finished. And what that meant was Jesus was signaling and proclaiming that no more sacrifice or temples were needed because he was the fulfillment of them all once and for all. And Jesus proved this to be true by rising again from death on the third day, conquering sin, Satan, and death forever. Jesus himself would be the new and greater temple, the dwelling place of God, the mediator in which the worship of God's people can come through. And so that's why his people can worship him, not in a building, not in a place, not in Jerusalem, but through Christ, wherever God's people gather in the name of Jesus, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Hallelujah. And whosoever, anyone and everyone who will call on his name will be saved. That is the promise of Scripture, and all those who are saved, hallelujah, would be persevered as the bride of Christ, 
the church universal made visible through church local is the testimony of Christ's promised return. So friends and visitors, if you are here and you are not a Christian, we welcome you. Thank you so much for being here today. I don't know why you are here. On the Lord's Day, on a Sunday afternoon, you could be doing anything else, watching football, sleeping in, well, it's afternoon, maybe taking a nap. But for whatever reason, the Lord has brought you here this afternoon, and we are so glad. For this reason, perhaps you are here today to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and respond. There is no better news, friend. In Christ, there is life beyond death. In Christ, there is hope in this broken, fallen world. In Christ, there is joy in the midst of suffering. In Christ, there is a body of believers who will be committed to you, who will pray for you, who will love you and care for you, committed to you to the end because of Christ's love in us. So if the Spirit of God is speaking to you this afternoon, do not hesitate. Do not doubt. Do not deafen your ears to his still small but clear voice. Do not harden your hearts to this certain promised invitation. Repent of your sins today. Believe that Jesus died and rose again for you. Trust him with your whole life today and forevermore. He is able. He is able to carry you and persevere you to the end. Do not let this day pass without praying to him or talking to someone about how you can follow Christ. Talk to me at the close of service. I'll be standing at this door. Pastor Jeremy will be standing at the outside door. Or talk to anyone smiling next to you. Yes, it is a time for everyone to smile. If you know Jesus Christ, happy in Jesus, we are looking forward to speaking with you about how you may follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let me speak to the members of New Covenant Baptist Church. Are you so thankful to be counted among the number of Christ's glorious church? How then does your membership in this local church testify of your gratitude? Are you covenanted to your brothers and sisters in this body in a way that unashamedly honors Christ? Unashamedly honors Christ? Are you serving, discipling, giving, and evangelizing as if this church actually matters or means something as Christ's blood-spilled church? Do you serve it that way? Do you think of it that way? Not just some place you come to take your religious fill. Let me just say thank you to so many of you who serve this body so humbly and faithfully, whether anyone takes notice or not. Without the prayers, without the hard work of many of you, none of this is possible as a young church. Whether you are weekly meeting for discipleship to encourage fellow brothers or sisters, whether you are gently loving, calling, uh, loving others, fellow members, calling out sin and praying for them, whether you are seeking or heeding godly counsel, whether you are serving on the music team or in the various ministries of our church and PowerPoint sound, 1 Corinthians 12.12 says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ's body. Every single one of you members matters. In other words, we are one body, one body of Christ. We can't function without one another. So please, thank you. As you are, continue to serve faithfully, love wholeheartedly as unto Christ. This glorifies Christ. This testifies of Christ. This matures you to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, according to Ephesians 4.13, which leads us to our final but very, very short point, is joining the local church actually necessary? Yes, the answer is yes. Fourth and finally, what does our membership say? What does our membership say? Or in other words, what our membership says to one another and to the world. So basically, 
I already said everything I needed to say in terms of what our local church membership speaks of, that we are of Team Jesus, that we are to be held accountable, that we acknowledge we can't live the Christian life alone, that we are obedient to Christ's commands and ordinances, that we are part of the universal church, that we are covenanted and committed to the local body of believers to carry out the one another commands of Scripture to glorify Christ and to testify of the gospel to this world. And that's why I love that our church is continuing to grow, continuing to grow in diversity, in multi-ethnicity and multi-generationally. Let's continue to pray and work towards that end, to be intentional in our evangelism and our discipleship, to look more like the diverse community of Montgomery County around us, and ultimately reflecting God's kingdom, the kingdom of all nations. As you have heard me often say from Ephesians 4, unity is God's goal for the local church. Diversity is God's gift to the local church. Discipleship is God's plan for church growth. So again, get me clearly in what I'm saying. Unity is our goal. To be a gospel-centered, gospel-revealing church community arrayed with the gift of God's diversity is our goal. Understand that's what we are praying and working towards. In our day of deep political, racial, and social and cultural division, white churches are looking more white, black churches are looking more black, Asian churches are looking more Asian, Hispanic churches are looking more Hispanic, may NCBC New Covenant Baptist Church be a church that prayerfully and intentionally seek to be a church that proclaims Christ's promises to make disciples of all nations. Amen? All are welcome here to put your trust in Christ and follow Christ with us in repentance and faith. Amen? You may say, well, isn't that what all Bible-believing churches are trying to do? Well, I'm simply pressing the point. If there is no prayerfulness, if there is no intentionality, it just doesn't happen. There is a reason why the Sunday morning hour is still one of the most segregated hours of the week. And I'm thankful that many of our Bible preaching churches in our county are not so. Let's continue to pray that our church would continue to grow in faithfulness and gospel fidelity. Amen? So how do we do it practically? Much of this point is for applications from Jonathan Lehman's very short book, Understanding Congregational Authority, where he highlights seven congregational responsibilities. In other words, brothers and sisters, as members of New Covenant Baptist Church, we have work to do. We don't just sit around. Yes, we worship God. We are delighted to be here and gather together to sing and pray and read and preach God's word. But we are also here to do work. And for Christ's name to be made known, we serve and give everything that we have. So seven things, seven ways that you could serve and work toward God's glory. Number one, assemble together regularly. Make Sundays a priority. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Preserve the true gospel. Affirm gospel citizens. Attend members' meetings. Disciple other church members. Share the gospel with non-Christians. Honor church leadership as you follow Christ. Let me repeat that. Assemble together regularly. Do these seven things well, brothers and sisters. Assemble together regularly. Preserve the true gospel. Discern for yourself what the true gospel is. Know it. Proclaim it. Share it. Affirm gospel citizens. Know who are Christians and know who are not. And pray for them and work that they may know Christ. Attend members' meetings. Own this church. Serve this church. Welcome new members. Welcome them out. 
Disciple other church members. Meet with other members of this church. Study the Bible together. Read good books together. Pray with one another. Disciple other church members. Share the gospel with non-Christians. Share the gospel with non-Christians and honor church leadership as you follow Christ. That last point may be sometimes a little abstract, so let me specify how members can honor and submit to leadership specifically in the context of the church or elders as members of this local church, which is directly from Hebrews 13, 17, which says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You see how, as I shared last Sunday, it's not one way, but it's both ways. Members submit in a way that elders and pastors can lead with joy, and elders lead with care, because ultimately, we will give an account to God for the souls that God has placed under our care. You notice how pastors won't be accountable to God for any souls, for random souls, for random Christians, but for the souls who covenant together in church membership. Brothers and sisters, in your submission, in my preaching and pastoral care, may we together glorify Christ, our chief shepherd. May we point others to him who is our true bridegroom. Brothers and sisters, the purpose of our church membership is for the glory of Christ and for our testimony as his church. Let me conclude with the words of our church covenant for our reflection and reminder and encouragement. Our church covenant says this, Having, as we trust, been brought by God's sovereign grace to repent from sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and having been baptized upon our profession of faith, we, the members of New Covenant Baptist Church, earnestly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. We will examine the scriptures corporately and privately that we might grow in faith and speak God's truth to one another in love. We will prayerfully maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor will we neglect to pray for each other. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and lovingly bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will humbly love one another as Christ has loved us and will forgive one another as God has forgiven us. We will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, graciously accepting encouragement and admonition. We will be careful in our lives to deny worldliness and ungodly lusts, remembering that we have a special obligation to lead a new and holy life. We will be faithful in our evangelism to our neighbors, seeking to proclaim the gospel with love and urgency. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. We will, if we move from this place, unite with another church as soon as possible where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a precious gift your word is to us. Father, your word shows us and points us to the one true Savior and Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Father, upon our profession of faith, we were brought into the family of God. Hallelujah, what a precious gift the local church is to us. Father, I thank you so much for the members of New Covenant Baptist Church. Continue to bless them, continue to provide for them, continue to build them up to the maturity of faith, to experience the fullness of Christ. 
Father, if there are any Christians here who do not belong to a church, help them to consider prayerfully and humbly whether they should join this church or some other gospel-preaching church as soon as possible. Father, if there is anyone amongst us who do not know you, may this be the day they repent and believe and trust in Christ. And may they be welcomed into the fold of God. Father, we thank you for this reminder that we are not alone in this world, in this broken, fallen world, that we have a great cloud of witnesses, past, present, and future, walking alongside with us. And by Christ's word and his Holy Spirit, you will persevere us to the end. And thank you for the hope and the promise that we have in your word that you will return for us. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.